So how many of you are planning to watch the Super Bowl tonight? Okay, yeah, a few hands. Now, I, now some of you, you got to admit, you're not going to watch the game. You're going to watch the commercials, right? That's why you watch. Okay, yeah, more hands went up on that one. Uh, I heard a story from a few years ago about a guy who started dating this girl, and she would only watch the commercials. And so he was bound and determined to really introduce her to the game that he loved. And so he and a bunch of his friends decided to take her to a football game. And while there, she seemed to really be getting into it. And then their, their team won. And so everyone's really pumped. And as they're leaving the stadium, walking through the parking lot, back to their cars, one of the friends asks her, so what'd you think? And she says, you know, that, that was kind of fun. And inside the boyfriend goes, yes, thinking she's the one. But then she spoke up and says, but I was confused by something. And so the friend says, you know, what, what was that? She says, well, I just didn't understand why there was all that commotion going on on the field over 25 cents. And everyone stopped and looked at her. It's like, what? She says, well, yeah, the guy in the striped shirt flipped the coin at the beginning. And then for the rest of the three hours of the game, they kept yelling, get the quarterback, get the quarterback. All right, I know, bad joke. But it proves a point that every little niche in life seems to have its own language. In football, it is the quarterback, the running back, the cornerback. It's not nickelback. But there's all these things. Okay, someone got the joke. Thank you. Or if you get a new job, you learn there's a whole new set of language. You got to learn the names of the different buildings or rooms or, you know, the nicknames for the break room or certain procedures and processes. And then there's always all of those, you know, acronyms you got to learn. You know, you got to figure out why the AGT goes on the PIA and how to crack the EGG. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. You've got to learn this new language. And learning languages can sometimes be hard. How many of you took a foreign language in, in school? Okay, a lot of hands went up. I took four years of high school Spanish. I had an awesome teacher, not because he was good at teaching Spanish, just because he was a really nice, funny guy. About the only thing I gained from my four years of Spanish was The Princess Bride. He loved this movie. And every single year we would watch it with Spanish subtitles. And so all I learned how to say after four years of Spanish was, Hola, mi nombre es Inigo Montoya. Matasia mi padre. Preparate a morir. It turns out that does not help you overseas. Who knew? One of my classmates, uh, Steve, was in my class all four years. But he got to go spend six months in Argentina. And he too reported back that the Princess Bride lines just didn't help. But about two months after he was gone, I saw his mom someplace, and I, I asked how Steve was doing. And she said they had the funniest phone conversation the week before. He was all excited because he'd had a dream in Spanish. It meant he was actually becoming fluent because he was starting to think in Spanish. You know, it, it's hard sometimes learning the language. But once you could begin to think in it, it becomes so much easier I know from personal experience, uh, many of you know that Leanne and I spent a couple of years right after college graduation working at a missionary kid's school in Venezuela. And one day, I went downstairs from our apartment to pay the rent. And I rang the doorbell of our landlord landlord's home, and instead of the landlord answering or his wife, the daughter answered. And the daughter was in a very similar life stage as Leanne and myself. Uh, she was newly married, had a little kid just like us. And she was going to graduate school and was having to learn English. 
And so I was trying to get her to speak English with me, and she refused because she said my Spanish was better than her English. And I'm thinking all I know are Princess Bride lines. This is not good. And so we began to have a conversation. Well, eventually I made it back upstairs and Leanne asks me where I went because normally taking the the, uh, rent money was a two-minute deal and I was gone for an hour. And I said, well, I've been talking with their daughter. Leanne looks at me like, you've been talking with her for an hour? What did you talk about? And I had to think through my head our conversation and I realized it had only been about a 10-minute conversation. It just had taken me so long to like learn what she was saying, translate it in my head to English, realize what it was, then translate what I wanted to say back into Spanish and try to communicate it. And I knew it was really bad because I spoke at about a two-year-old level. Steve was fluent after about two months. I spent two years in Venezuela and still spoke like a two-year-old. Although I can say Princess Bride lines with the best of them. I think that in America... Christians are about as fluent in the biblical gospel as I am in Spanish. I think they have about a two-year-old level. I mean, they, they know the big things. They can tell you, yeah, yeah, Jesus died on a cross. But to go beyond that, they couldn't really tell you. If they tried, what should be a 10-minute conversation would take them an hour. Because they just don't really know the story. We have some idea of it. But it isn't a part of us. We are not fluent in the gospel. That's why today, for the month of February, we are going to talk about the gospel. And so we're going to spend four weeks here looking at this topic. And today we're going to look at why we need to continue to learn, continue to study it, so that we can eventually get to a place where we think it, we live it, and then we can just naturally speak it. So if you brought a Bible, would you open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? As you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians what his aim in ministry is. He said this in Colossians 1.28, that Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, here's the phrase, mature in Christ. For Paul, it wasn't enough to just travel around telling people the gospel. He wanted them to become mature in Christ. Or to put it in our language at Riverwood, he wanted them to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Or, to maybe put it in another way, Paul wanted everyone to get a doctorate in the gospel. How do you get a doctorate? Take a lot of classes. You do a lot of studying. You put in a lot of work. I can guarantee if you grew up in America that you were pretty much fluent in English before you ever went to kindergarten. Because you could think in English, you could speak English, and some of you, you could even read a little bit of English before you ever set foot into a classroom. And yet, that did not stop your teachers from pretty much every year of your schooling through your high school, uh, you know, senior year, of making you take some sort of English class. You continued to study it all those years. And many of you, you went to college. And in college, you probably had at least one class. Maybe some of you, you got a minor or a major in English, meant more classes, more studying. But if you wanted to, you could go on and get a doctorate, which meant even more study. If we could do that with a subject like English, 
We should be doing that with the most amazing, life-changing story that has ever been. The gospel. Just because we heard the gospel when we were in fourth grade and saw the flannel graph in Sunday school, or, or because we heard some great preachers tell it to us once, or we read a book about it, doesn't mean we now have it completely captured, completely understood. We've got this thing down. The gospel is so rich in its vastness, we will never be able to fully plumb the depth of it. That's why we have to continue to search, to read, and to learn. And that's what Paul was going to do with the Corinthians. You see, Paul had come to Corinth, shared the gospel, and some people heard it and believed it. And so a church formed. And so he pastored this church for a little while, raised up others to lead it, before he took off to go and plant the gospel and a church somewhere else. But word had gotten back to Paul that the church in Corinth wasn't doing very well. And that's putting it mildly. This church was a mess relationally. I mean, they had all sorts of cliques going on. There, there was other inf, you know, infighting and factions. They were a mess sexually. I mean, there was just blatant sexual immorality. They, they were a mess spiritually. I mean, their worship service was chaos. I mean, this was a dysfunctional group of people. And Paul has to write them to address these issues. This is why it's one of his longest letters that we have recorded, because they were such a mess. And as he finally addresses a lot of these issues, as he comes towards the end of his letter, he writes this. Join me, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered it to you as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, I want you to keep in mind who he is writing to. He's writing to a church. A church that is supposedly filled with Christians. Jesus followers. And yet, I just said that they were a mess. So rather than go and address the mess and just try to shame them, did you hear what he said? He started it off by saying, now I would remind you. And what is it he's trying to remind them of? He's trying to remind them of the gospel. And just to be clear what gospel he's preaching, he shares it down in verses 3 and 4. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Right? Like, this is the most important thing. If you're going to follow Jesus, this is what you have to get. This is the core. This is the first importance. And he says that I also receive. So it's not like he has some special knowledge and is better than them. No, like what he's received, he's given to them. It's the same gospel. And his message hasn't changed at all. It's not like he's writing to them saying, oh, when I was with you, I told you this, but now I've learned. No, he's saying, I gave you what I already had. I was preaching this to you. It's the gospel. And it was just simply this. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. 
There it is. That's the gospel. And each one of those things is necessary to be the gospel message. For instance, if we eliminated the death of Jesus, then we can't have a resurrection. And now this is no longer like some miraculous thing. It's no longer Jesus showing that he had authority over even death itself. That, that he, you know, if he just fell asleep or, or swooned on the cross, as some people were trying to say, then you have no gospel message. He had to die so that he could rise. But also, his death was proven with the burial. I mean, think about it. He had been lashed on his back, crown of thorns jabbed on his head, nails stuck through his wrists and through his feet. He gets put inside this tomb, and he just somehow miraculously gets better in three days? No, the burial proved he was done. He was gone. It was over. Then, if you get rid of the resurrection, if you say, okay, yeah, yeah, he died and he was buried, but I don't think he really rose from the dead. Now you have no gospel. Right? The, the resurrection shows that Jesus was not like other spiritual gurus. I mean, if, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus was just a good teacher who was misunderstood and falsely executed. And, and that's what most religions have, is a leader who, you know, taught all sorts of spiritual ideas. They founded some new religion, and, and then they died. Some religions, they make their spiritual guru reincarnate. They believe that he or she came back. But they don't dare say that, no, no, our, our leader was God. God became human. God died, but then rose again from the dead. And if they did try to claim that, they couldn't have proven it. Paul, though, is saying, I can prove it. And he starts naming all of these people who saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter, Cephas, was there when Jesus hung on a cross. He knew exactly which tomb he'd been put in because when the women came back claiming that we can't find the body, we can't find Jesus, we think he's alive, he was one of the two that rushed to the tomb. He knew where it was at. And yet, he saw the resurrected Christ. And so if any of the Corinthians were doubting this whole gospel message, like maybe we, we, we bought into something that, that isn't real, Paul is saying, all right, just jump on a ship, head back to Israel and Jerusalem, Find Peter. Find James. Find one of these 500 people and ask them. And you'll find out this isn't some religious myth. This isn't just some story someone created. It's true. It was a true story. And it was a story that changed Paul's life. If you go into the book of Acts, you can read how Paul used to persecute the church and yet, after meeting Jesus in a vision on the road on his way to Damascus to go and arrest more Jesus followers, instead of going and arresting Jesus followers, Paul became arrested by the grace of Jesus. Instead of persecuting people who were part of the church of God, he starts inviting people to become part of the church of God. His life was utterly and radically changed by the gospel. And Paul knows that that gospel was supposed to have radically changed the Corinthians too. That's why when Paul writes to them, he doesn't say, oh, shame on you. Instead, he writes to them, I would remind you. He wants to remind them of the gospel. It's because his identity was rooted in the gospel, but their identity had not. If their identity had been rooted in the gospel, he would not have had to write such a long letter. But because their identity wasn't in the gospel— He's got to remind them of it again. And I want you to notice how he tries to bring their identity back 
into the gospel. Look back up with me in verse 1. There's three things. He says that this gospel I preached to you, and he says, in which you received. Which you received. Sometimes I will have a couple come to me uh, for marital counseling. Uh, things aren't going well. Uh, husband and wife are, are fighting, and they, they just need a little bit of help. Now, I'm a big context person, not just with the Bible, but just in, in life and in stories. I like knowing where people are from, what they've experienced. It just helps me get to know who they are a little better. And so when I sit down with a couple, I will often ask them, so tell me how you met. It just helps me get some context. But every once in a while when I ask that question and they start sharing their story, I can almost like see a rekindling in their eyes. It's like as they go back and they think about it, like, oh yeah, that, that's why I liked you. That's, we were such good friends. I was so attracted to you. And it's almost like it reminds them of what was really important, what really mattered. And it then begins to help clear up kind of the muddy present that they find themselves in. I think that's what Paul is trying to do here. He says that this gospel message that I preached to you, which you received. He's talking in the past. Look back and see what it was you heard, what it was you believed. That might help bring a little bit of clarity to what you're going through right now. And so if you are a Jesus follower, sometimes when you find yourself in a difficult situation and you start doubting the goodness of God, you start doubting your theology, you start really struggling, sometimes to help you, you got to look back. Look back to the moment that you knew the gospel was true. Look back on the day that you went public with your faith and were baptized. Look back on the day that you saw someone else's life changed by the gospel. Look back and see a time when God did something good for you. Because as you look back, it helps you remember. And it helps to clear up the issue right now. And so Paul wanted them to realize that their identity had started in the gospel. It was something that they had received. But it isn't just from their past. It's also for their present. Look at the next phrase. He says that this gospel in which you stand. I want to point out two things about it. First, notice it's kind of that present tense, that they stand in it. It's to be part of their present reality right now. It's to be who they are. But also notice that who he's writing to, he's writing to a really, really messy church. These guys are screwing up all over the place. And yet, what's he say to them? It's in which they stand. Which tells me that no matter what you are going through right now, you are never too far from the grace of God. You might be struggling with an addiction right now. You might be struggling with some hang-up from your past. There may be some relational thing going on. You may be really, really struggling. And yet, you're never too far from the love of God. You can stand in this gospel. It can be your identity now. It's to be your present reality. So it isn't just something to be from our past. It's also to be what we're in right now. But then he says one more phrase. It's there in the beginning of verse 2. He says, it's by which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. I was uh, looking at several different translations uh, this week. And I noticed that the Net Bible and the ESV, which I'm preaching from today, the, it used that be, you are being saved. But if you looked at some other translations, they kind of just put it in like a, a present tense or even just a past tense. They said, in which you are saved. Right? So it was like kind of a done deal. So I was a little confused. Like, because to me, the being saved is like this you know, continual action. 
And yet, just to say that you are saved, it would sound like it was just done and complete. And, and I am not a Greek scholar. So I, I had to start digging around for some other people smarter than I who could help me understand what is it. And it turns out it's both. It's that you are saved. It's a done deal. And yet God is using this gospel to continue to work it out. It's by which you are being saved. As the seminarians like to say, it's about your sanctification. That, that in, in God's eyes, it's a done deal. You are saved. It's complete. He sees you already as you're going to be in heaven. And yet he's still working on you. That's the not yet. He's still in process of making you like Jesus, making you mature in Christ. And so I love it. If you look at this, it means this gospel, which you received in your past, which you stand in in your present, and by which you are being saved as you move into your future. That's how powerful the gospel is and why it should be part of your identity. And that's why it's worth us taking some time today to look at the gospel yet again. Uh, if you get our uh, weekly news and notes email... You saw this last Thursday that I started a new series on the gospel. And uh, in Matt Chandler's book, The Explicit Gospel, he talks about the gospel from two different vantage points. One he calls the gospel on the ground, which is God, man, Christ response. If you are familiar with the four spiritual laws, then you are familiar with this gospel on the ground, as Matt puts it. I'm walking us through that one part at a time. So this last Thursday was God. Next Thursday is going to be man, and we'll just do that through February. If, if by the way, you're not getting our weekly email, first check your spam folder, because if you've given us your email address, you're probably getting it, and your spam filter thinks that I'm a, a spammer. Uh, so go and check that. And if for some reason it's not there, just simply write on your connection card your email address and that you want to get the email, all right? Because it's in there, like we, we remind you of where we're going to be, uh, you know, for location on Sundays and, and, and such. But I also want it as another teaching vehicle. And so I'm trying to show you the gospel from one vantage point. But as Matt points out, there's another vantage point that he calls the gospel from the air. Um, when Leanne and I were in college, we were dating, and I knew she was the one. And I thought we were too young to, to get married. And so I was intentionally not planning any sort of engagement. I refused to look at engagement rings because I thought if I did those sort of things, I'd end up proposing marriage. And I thought, no, we got to wait. We got to wait until we graduate. We got to wait until we're a little older. And yet I couldn't stop myself. One night I cracked and I proposed marriage to her. Now, she obviously said yes. It was two weeks later, but that's a story for another time. But it means I had the joy of my bride being with me as we looked at engagement rings. And one thing we discovered was that when you would look at these diamonds, you would see this beautiful diamond, and you'd see all these colors and angles and shapes and cuts on it. But if you would turn it, you suddenly start seeing more beauty. You'd see new colors, new cuts, new angles. And how much would we have missed out if we'd only looked at one angle and thought, yeah, that's pretty, let's do it. No, you got to keep turning it to keep seeing more. That's what we have to do with the gospel. That's why we can write an email and look at the gospel on the ground and look at it from that angle. It's why today we can look at the gospel from the air, creation, fall, response, and reconciliation. It's why we can go and look at, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection and call that the nugget of the gospel. It's just simply taking this gospel message and turning it to see new cuts, new colors, new angles that just continues to make us be 
in awe. And so let's just take a little bit of time to look at the gospel from the air. First is creation. I remember when Leanne and I were living in Denver, Colorado, uh, our realtor gave us two tickets to a Colorado Rockies game. And so we found someone to watch Little Karis, and we took off for a Sunday afternoon date. We were incredibly poor back then, and so this was a huge special deal. And I remember as we're walking up to Coors Field, there was a street preacher standing on a plastic milk crate, and he's preaching. He's got his Bible in one hand and a bullhorn, well, a, a little you know, walkie-talkie type thing, go into a bullhorn that was on his, his hip, and he's preaching away. Now, we did not stop to listen to him. We just kept right on walking with everyone else. So we only heard about 15, maybe 20 seconds of his message. But all we heard during those 15 or 20 seconds was repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Avoid the judgment of God. The wrath of God is coming, so you must repent. It, it was as if he was hearing, reading a Bible, where his Bible started in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 shows us the fall of humans. That's where Adam and Eve sinned. It's right there. And so he had that strong. But what he was missing, or at least in the 15 to 20 seconds we heard, was chapters 1 and 2. Because to truly understand how devastating chapter 3 is, you've got to go back and you've got to see creation. Because when God creates Everything he creates is good and perfect because he is good and perfect, which means that humans were designed to be good and perfect. So you have to go to creation. You have to start there because that shows you the beauty, the design, the, the wonderment of the creator. And it helps you to understand just how bad the next section is. And that is the fall. And have you ever had a dream where you're, you're falling? Okay, not very many. Okay, great, I'm alone. Uh, okay, thank you. I, I remember being about five or six years old, and I had this dream where I'm running through a jungle, and I'm being chased by an army. I have no idea what movie I watched. Maybe it was Rambo or something. But I remember being really young, and I'm terrified in this dream, and I'm running through the jungle, and I keep looking over my shoulder, trying to see how close they're getting to me. And one time as I look over my shoulder, all of a sudden I fall into this pit that I didn't see. And as I fall into this pit, right when I'm supposed to hit the bottom of it, I jerk awake. Here I am now, almost 40 years later. And I just, I, I still can remember that feeling. It was awful. That's why the sin of Adam and Eve is called the fall. Because it was awful. They were at the height of the story. They were in paradise. And they broke the only commandment that was given to them. They ate of the one fruit God said, do not even touch. And when they sunk their teeth into that fruit, all of that creation fell. It descended from the gloriousness that it was in into brokenness, into decay, into spiritual darkness. And it wasn't just the creation around them. It was also the image of God in them. That is why the fall is so bad. That's why you have to start with creation. Because now you understand just how devastating the fall is. That's not the end of the story. After creation and fall, the next part is redemption. Redemption. We don't use the word redemption very often. Uh, maybe like with coupons, you know, redeeming a coupon. 
uh, Leanne says that in Kids Creek, they use uh, pop cans, that, you know, when you take your pop can in to the redemption center. And I like that because when you go to the store and you buy your soda, you pay the money for it. And then there's this five cent deposit put on top of it. But you can get that back if you go and take it to some sort of redemption center. And after you redeem it, there you get it back. And that's what God has done with us. If you think about it, the creation was beautiful. It was perfect. It's awe-inspiring. But that means that the the fall is horrific. It's tear-inducing. And redemption is like the mingling of the two. Because redemption, excuse me, is awful because for Jesus to buy us back, to get us back, he had to pay our penalty, our death. It's absolutely horrific. His back was whipped to shreds. A crown of thorns jammed onto his head. Nails pierced through his wrists and his feet. And he's hung up naked on a cross to be jeered at and mocked at. And spiritually, he was bearing the entire sin of the world upon him. It was horrific. And yet it's also beautiful. Because that very act of sacrifice is what allowed sin to be broken and for humans to come out of their sin back into relationship with their God. We could be received back. It was redemption. But that wasn't the end. That redemption opens us up for reconciliation. I, I am not much of a crier when I watch movies. I mean, Leanne will be like going through a whole box of Kleenex and I'm just going, oh, okay, yeah. But there are a couple of things that, that could get me. First are those videos of like the, the mom or dad who've been in the military who comes back after being, you know, overseas for a year and seeing the family. Yeah, okay, those, those get me. All right, any, am I alone? Okay, good, thank you. Um, the other one that gets me though is when you have a story about like a husband and wife and, and they're, they're like, you know, not getting along, things are really stressed or, or maybe between a parent and a child and the child's rebelled and run away and just, you know, going totally against what the parent desires for them. But then someone will humble themselves, come to the other, or maybe some tragedy will happen and help them realize, like, this is ridiculous. Why did we have this riff? Because this tragedy has happened. And now I realize this was, this was stupid. We need each other. We're stronger together. And when that moment of reconciliation happens, it, it gets me. I'll get choked up just a little bit. And the reason I think I get choked up is because it just gives me yet another glimpse of the gospel. Because that is the gospel story. You were created to be in relationship with God. He put his image in you. But because of our sin, because of our rebellion, that relationship was strained and even broken. And yet God did everything necessary on his side to make it possible for us to come back to him. And when we say yes to him, we are reconciled. It shows us that the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross are the outstretched arms of God ready to welcome us and embrace us into his presence. This is the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. It had the power to change Paul's life. It had the power to change the Corinthians. And it has the power to change you. But for it to change you, it's got to move beyond just hearing it. Just being familiar with it. You need to get a doctorate in it. You need to become fluent 
Because if you let this beautiful diamond of the gospel become the most precious thing to you, and you spend your life looking and observing and getting to know it intimately, you will move from just having an awareness of the greatest story ever to being able to think the story, to being able to speak the story, and just being able to live the story. So, Father, I pray that this series would be a key critical time in the life of Riverwood, that we would be a church that's all about Jesus and this gospel story. God, I pray that you would protect us from callous hearts and weak minds, where we think that because we've heard something once before, we know it. That instead, God, you would help us to see that just having a certain level of understanding is only so much. That you would help us to go deeper with you, to go deeper into your gospel. God, forgive us for thinking that the gospel is what gets us into your kingdom, and then we got to like move on to bigger and better and greater things. Instead, God, I pray that you'd help us to see that this gospel that we have received, in which we stand, it's also what you use to save. It is the process you use to mold us and shape us into that image of Jesus, to make us mature in Christ. So God, as we study this gospel over these next several weeks, I pray you would continue to just do your deep work in us. Because as we are able to think the gospel, we're then able to live the gospel, to go and be a blessing to others, and even be able to go and naturally share the gospel. Not because we feel forced to, not because it's a duty. We're able to share it just because it is the joy of our life. God, would you do this in us? Because I believe that is where we will find our greatest joy. Because I believe that this gospel message can change our marriages. It can change our parenting. It can change our friendships at school. It can change our work relationships. It can change everything around us. That's why, God, I'm asking you to help us become fluent, to know this gospel in and out, to appreciate the beauty and power of it, to never get tired of it. So, God, we celebrate that gospel message right now as we come to the communion table. As we take that bread, we remember the death of Jesus and his burial, how his body was broken for us. And as we take that cup, we remember his blood was so liberally and lavishly shed because our sin was so evil and awful and horrible. And yet, Jesus, you came and did it for us. And so as horrific as the fall and our sin is, your sacrifice is beautiful and it needs celebrated. So God, help us to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus right now as we continue to sing, as we continue to pray, and as we continue to become fluent in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.